Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Tracy Rector is on the show today. For the last two decades, Tracy has been a community organizer, educator, filmmaker, film programmer, and arts curator. She is currently the Managing Director of Storytelling at Neotero, an NGO focused on securing indigenous guardianship of vital ecosystems. At Neotero, she focuses her passion and experience on amplifying and empowering indigenous voices, and this work takes her all over the world. Just a few days ago, I saw on Instagram that she was in Port Vila on the Vanuatu Islands. Tracy earned her B.A. in Native American Studies and Communications from Evergreen State College and her master's degree in education and teacher certification from Antioch University's First Peoples program. Her focus was collaborative media and identity exploration with at-risk Native youth. Her first feature project, Teachings of the Tree People, the work of Bruce Miller, brought oral tradition into a contemporary storytelling format while also identifying how Coast Salish communities wanted to be involved in the filmmaking process. Her second feature-length film was the documentary March Point, a collaboration with Longhouse Media co-founder Annie Silverstein and three young Swinomish filmmakers. Rector's work has been screened at the Cannes Film Festival, Imaginative Film Plus Media Arts Festival, National Geographic's All Roads Film Festival, Toronto International Film Festival, the Seattle Arts Museum, and in the Smithsonian's Museum of the American Indian. She's also been nationally broadcast on the PBS film series Independent Lens. For the last 17 years, Tracy has directed and produced over 400 films. Just a few of her awards and honors include the Horace Mann Award, along with Best Feature Documentary Award. Tracy is also a former Sundance Institute Lab Fellow, and a Tribeca All-Access grantee. In 2016, she won the Genius Award from the Seattle publication The Stranger. And this year, 2019, Tracy won an Emmy for her work on Dawnland, a documentary she produced about the cultural genocide perpetrated by social workers in the state of Maine. For decades, these social workers removed indigenous children from their homes and placed them in foster care and boarding schools, causing profound trauma to children and the parents they were taken from. I highly recommend this film, which is streaming free on PBS through the end of November, and will likely be available on other streaming platforms after that. The film highlights an important and untold part of American history. I had a great time getting to know Tracy during our talk, and I really hope you enjoy this wide-ranging discussion with filmmaker and storyteller Tracy Rector. Tracy Rector, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, well, I had the uh, the great pleasure of watching Dawnland, and uh, I, I understand that you're a part of that film. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us how you got involved and what role you played in that movie? Sure. Um, well, so first off, I'm glad that we are talking here today in Coast Salish territory, and specifically the traditional lands of the Duwamish people. And how I became involved with Dawnland was um, the two directors, Adam Mazo and Ben Pendercudlip, decided that 
you know, with some advice that they needed to really engage significant indigenous feedback and advice, um, specifically in a key creative role for the film. And this was a way for them to both just recognize they have some blind spots as white men, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but also to honor that they felt they really wanted to have that help in being held accountable to the Wabanaki people and community. So uh, through various peoples, um, they found my name, we interviewed, and I let them know that I didn't want to just be a token, but that if I did join the team, that it was important to me that my advice mattered and that I was a significant contributor to the project in an authentic way. And they said yes. And it's been an incredible experience working together. They are wonderful allies. We need more allies um, in the way that they are um, walking their talk, you know. And that's how it came to Donland. So I'm officially the impact producer. And in my role, I um, am responsible for and kind of ensuring that the film get out into the world. So how many years in the making has this been? So Donlan was roughly five years in the making from our educational director first hearing about it on NPR to the actual production and final premiere of the film. But, you know, to be honest... The Donland started with the Wabanaki women who decided they wanted to establish a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Ah, yeah. And so that was the real seed of the work, was those women who decided that there needed to be a vehicle for truth-telling. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Maine, has there been anything like that in any other state? Or is this, this is the first I've heard of that type of inquiry. Yeah, it is the first government-sanctioned truth and reconciliation um, that recognizes that there was, in fact, genocide towards indigenous peoples on these lands now called the United States. It's a big deal. Yeah. It's a very big deal. And there has not been uh, anything quite like it since. But there's a number of people, um, lawyers, judges, tribal communities, allies, who love the idea and are trying to make it happen across the U.S. and different communities. Yeah, as as someone who has seen a small fraction of the repercussions of the genocide that's occurred since the 1930s, probably, in the United States, I, I find it remarkable and, and shocking that there are not Truth and Reconciliation Commissions happening in every single state to really educate, first of all, discover what actually happened, to find the truth, um, and also to educate the public about it. Because I, I really don't think, I, I would venture to say, the vast majority of the American population has no clue what our government did to Native American children and, and families. I agree. Yeah. Um, do you see any progress being made in Washington State? Because we have a fairly progressive governor and the legislature is really kind of looking more progressive these days. Do you see any hope that we can find something like that here in Washington? You know, I hope so. There are a few women from the Quinault Nation, the Lemmy Nation, who've talked about and are working towards drafting a bill to create a Truth and Reconciliation Commission here in Washington State. Also, what's unique about Washington is we have some amazing tribal leadership and especially indigenous leaders in the realm of ICWA, or Indian Child Welfare. 
Yeah, there's just, I, as I understand, Washington State leads in many ways when it comes to social services for Native youth and families. And so I think hopefully, you know, knock on wood, that that will happen here next. And it's kind of fitting, you know, being on both coasts um, if something were to happen here. Yeah, yeah, kind of bookend the, uh, mm. the movement a little bit geographically and then move inward yep. <laughs> and start a, start a trend. Yeah. At the legislature level, state legislature. So when was the first time you got involved with storytelling as something beyond just writing a short story in junior high or, or high school, but really getting on a path of being a professional storyteller? Mm. Well, you know, I was just talking with a group this morning who are visiting and sharing with them my personal history of how I came to this work. And, you know, much of it was being raised and growing up in a pretty trying household, you know, that was impacted by addiction. And I just found safety and kind of my personal calm in watching TV. So as a latchkey kid, I watched a ton of television. And I think that truly characterized my escapism qualities into my head and, you know, this dream world. And as an adult, I worked as a domestic violence counselor. And what was really interesting about that work, it's very hard, but what was so special was doing the intakes with women and families and hearing their stories and just recognizing there was this way that I had a vivid way of seeing a story when it was being told to me, and that it felt like such an honor and a humble place to be in the presence of people sharing their story and their truth. And yeah, that was important work for me. And there was just something so tangible and beautiful about those moments sharing with people. I then went on to kind of finding self-healing, to be honest, and uh, working with an herbalist. And again, that's a, another scenario. I was working at Dandelion Botanical. It was another situation where people came in to tell me their story and try to figure out what kind of plant medicine they needed, you know, to find balance. And I ended up going to the Evergreen State College uh, because I thought at that time I was going to go ahead and try to maybe walk this path of traditional medicine and I began working in the garden of Bruce Miller at the Skokomish Reservation, and PBS came to do a story about him, and at that time, I was really focusing on compost. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you know, our people need the skills to tell our own stories, and if you want to do a story about me, it's important that you have a Native intern on the project. And so I was asked to be part of that film, which was called Teachings of the Tree People, Oh, that was your first film project, right? Mm -hmm. My yeah. very first film project. Yeah. And I loved it. It was that same situation where I just, I was able to sit and witness and be present hearing people's stories. And that's what's the most beautiful thing about documentary filmmaking is those moments where you get to do those interviews and just listen to story and share story. That was 17 years ago. And here I am today at Nia Taro as a storyteller. Nice. So can you tell us what Nia Taro is and what they do? Sure. Um, so Nia Taro is a global NGO, and we focus on uplifting and amplifying indigenous voices 
in protecting their traditionally held territories. And for us, we really want people to understand that 80% of the world's biodiversity is on these indigenous held lands. So protecting and honoring indigenous lifeways and territories is good for everyone and good for the health of the planet. So that's what we focus on here at Neotero. So Neotero, how do they get funding to do projects that are clearly not commercially viable projects? Um, is it through grants and that type of thing? Yeah, we're very lucky. We have a board of extraordinary indigenous leaders as well as some key funders who contributed sums of money for this work because they recognize that indigenous guardianship is vital to the earth's health. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I, I worry about that because there's so many stories that need to be told that are never going to make their way to Netflix or, you know, to the theaters. And, and that's just a product of, you know, the, the capitalistic society that we live in. And, and it's very unfortunate, I think, because these stories like Dawnland, which is, by the way, streaming free right now on, on PBS all month, they need to be told and they need to be understood. That's why I love that this organization exists and that people are funding it. But are you seeing challenges with grants and funding that are occurring because of either economic issues or political waves that are making it more difficult? Yeah, that's a good question. For Neotero, the organization's been very clear about indigenous guardianship and really attracting people who understand how important that message is and why it's essential and necessary to protect indigenous peoples held territories. Those conversations are huge though, because in the work that we do, you know, we're really thinking globally. And that requires people on the front lines doing the work. It requires communities, but also requires politicians and legislators and key decision makers. And so luckily our CEO, he is really well versed in talking with those key decision makers and in trying to combine work with our indigenous partners and trying to shift, make those big shifts in the minds of people who establish laws and bills that impact our environment. Um, really trying to find those mutual ways of meeting together and influencing others. Now, in terms of small nonprofits and small nonprofit work, it's, it's always a struggle. It's a struggle to get these stories out there. It's um, fighting for peanuts, right? Just trying to make something happen. And so a lot of the work that is occurring is just, you know, there's a lot of passionate people who are doing their life's work. And that's really how I came to Neotero because those are the practices that I was taking not making much money, making things happen because you just know that they have to happen and that's enough. So I feel lucky to be in this position where we have some resources to leverage to make change on a larger scale. So are you still involved with Longhouse Media? I am. As an advisor, I work with an amazing collective of women who are caring for the work of Longhouse Media. But of course, I'm an advisor being the co-founder, just carrying that institutional memory or holding that institutional memory. And plus, I'm just passionate about frontline, grassroots, hands-on work, too, to be in community. 
So let's go back to uh, Evergreen and this first film project that you had. I, I watched a few YouTube videos, interviews um, of you where you're, you're talking about basically teaching yourself how to work cameras and how to shoot film. Um, so what resources did you have at the time to help yourself learn the craft? It's, it's interesting. It, for me, becoming a filmmaker was absolutely a DIY effort. It was just hands-on, rolling up my sleeves, making it happen, learning as I go, making tons of mistakes, hopefully learning from those mistakes, and just doing the work. It was not perfect by any means, and I learned through the years that it was important to surround myself with people who actually knew what they were doing, and I also recognize that my style is very collaborative, and it's about a team effort to get a story told. Um, so definitely, I would never say something is driven by Tracy Rector, but that as a team, we were able to make something happen. Yeah. So where, where do you find, I mean, if you're giving advice to young people who are trying to find their community of people that are going to help them get where they want to go creatively, and that, that medium is film, visual storytelling, and they're in the Pacific Northwest, what are the steps that they can take to find that community and accomplish what you have? I mean, you, you just were a part of an Emmy-winning documentary, Donlin, correct? Yes. Uh, so, mm -hmm. I mean, you have this um, incredible success in your niche area. And people are probably turning to you for advice and reaching out to you and, and asking you for help. But, you know, you can only help so many people. So what advice are you going to give to young people who want to follow that same path but just need that community? You know, I learned in this work that half the battles just showing up, just show up, show up, show up, show up. And also, I would say that I was able to make happen in my career these steps because I volunteered quite a bit. So I not only sought out experiences and was very curious, but I just showed up on time and <laughs> kept coming back. And it takes a while. That's the other thing. It's like anything. And it you know really did take me a minute to understand this lesson that the more you are in practice of doing something, the more you show up in community, the more you head towards that North Star and keep taking the steps down the path, the broader your experience becomes. And hopefully the more successful you beco will become, depending on what that success looks like for you as an individual. So I don't know. So my advice is show up, make mistakes, learn, be on time, be curious, trust others, work together. It's just kind of some of those basic I don't know what you would call them, the basic golden rules of right. what you learn in kindergarten. Of, of any know? workplace. Of any workplace. You know, be a professional, pay your dues, and there are no shortcuts. There aren't. No. I mean, there's probably people that are uh, extremely lucky that mm -hmm. do get there faster than other people. But I think as a general rule, what I'm hearing you say is you got to do the work and you got to put in the time. And the collaboration part of it means... Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what I'm gathering from what you're saying. When you're collaborative, your ego is not really a factor. What is a factor is doing quality work and telling the story that needs to be told. And that seems, you know, looking at your career online and just kind of cyber stalking you before I showed up to, <laughs> to interview you, that's, that's the sense that I get is that, you know, you're not a person who has these um, huge 
aspirations to become a studio executive someday, you know, in, in Hollywood. Although, I mean, you could very well do that because I think you're talented enough to do it. But you just have this collaborative spirit that draws you into projects like Dawnland. I, I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth when I say that. No, no. I was just thinking of this this morning was hearing a story on the way into work about capitalism and growth and growth and growth. And I was thinking about my own journey. I never thought about getting bigger. I mean, there was a point where I thought about how do we grow our organization? But ultimately, that wasn't the point. The point was to try our best. So what stories are out there right now that you think are being neglected? They need to be gathered up and put into story form in some way that you want to be a part of. Yeah. Um, so now that I'm a full-time person, uh, there's less room for extra projects. But I am keeping my, out, my eye out for projects to support through Neotero. And things that interest me right now are films and media that's created in the language, films that show the vitality and successes of indigenous people, films and media that show the not just the survival, but the thriving that's happening amongst Native communities and the work that's happening on behalf of the environment. There's just so many beautiful stories that are about protecting and engaging and uplifting one another, and I'd like to see that more. And I think we just, you know, if I could put a shout out into the airwaves, uh, we need more support for Indigenous filmmakers in general, and I would like to see that happen across the boards. I think I heard you say in an interview previously that 80 to 90% of filmmakers are white males. But even more disturbing is that indigenous filmmakers make up, you know, I think less than 1% of, of the people who are involved in filmmaking. And uh, what is going on right now in terms of outreach to indigenous young people to educate them as to what their opportunities are in this space? I think, yeah, I think that statistic is roughly 85% of media makers are white men, even today, even though there's many initiatives for POC, persons of color filmmakers, for women, etc. Uh, it's kind of the reality still. And there's some interesting leaders that I'm looking towards this that are based in Canada, actually, with imaginative with um, Wapakoni Mobile, who are really figuring out pathways to nurture the next generation, but also current filmmakers, figuring out ways to skill build, to find resources, to share talent with one another and build infrastructure for capacity. There are a few places here in the U.S., including Vision Maker Media, Sundance, in progress, but there's not nearly enough. And I think that what I've witnessed is indigenous peoples have enormous amounts of stories to tell. There's so many and a lot of talent, but we just really need to see realized production facilities, education for this work, and just pathways for creating collective community filmmaking efforts on a larger scale. Yeah. I, I think I was, um, I was at a movie at the Seattle Inter International Film Festival in spring or summer this year, and there was an award given out, 
and I can't remember the name of the award, but they said, and last year's winner was or Tracy Rector. And I was like, oh, Tracy, that's, that's the person I want to talk to. And yep. that's when I was still trying to find you. Uh, you're a very dif- difficult person to find. Like, <laughs> find. You've created this firewall <laughs> of people and uh, there's no phone numbers and you know, I can't message you through social media. You've cut off all those things. So, but anyway, I was like, yeah, that's the person I want to talk to. But it, it, it um, showed me that you, you had some involvement with SIF. Are you still involved with SIF every year? And, and how helpful are they to, to distribute or get these movies seen? Wow. So SIF, I've been working with them for 14 years, running indigenous media maker programs and fellowships. And I've also been their indigenous content programmer. They've been freaking awesome. They are a groundbreaking institution in that they're the largest film festival in North America. And they give an enormous amount of space for programming indigenous made films. So not just films about indigenous peoples, but indigenous made stories. Nice. And they are fantastic. They show me trust. They show me support. They offer space. They are just incredible partners. And I think that if more large institutions like SIF were able to open their minds and their hearts and set aside colonial settler ways of (laughs) being in business, that there could be more success stories like SIF. And our screenings, they sell out there. There's a huge audience following. And I honestly believe it's because they've set aside their preconceived notions of how things should work. And they've trusted in community to show up and the power of indigenous made stories. Yeah. Well, I, I have been to Sundance a few times over the years. And I, for some reason, I just never made my way to SIF. Even though I, I live in Washington, I should go to SIF every year, but um, I went to Sundance and uh, they, it is such a, you know, glitz and glamour type of experience. It, it almost feels like even when you're there, you're not part of it because it's so elite. Like there's just an elitism to it. And I love Sundance, by the way. So I'm not trying to dog on on Sundance. I think they do great. I mean, there are workshops that they have and they I think they support, you know, women filmmakers and persons of color filmmakers. And I, I think they have a lot of great programs. But it's very difficult to see films there because it's so freaking expensive and it's a crapshoot if you're gonna get tickets and all this kind of stuff. So I go to SIF and it's a completely different experience. Very accessible. You know, you just get your tickets online and I mean, there are certain events that you got to be lucky to get tickets to, just like anything. But I really appreciate how open it is to everyday folks who are not in the industry. And, and you still get to feel like you're part of something really special at SIF. So I, I hope that it continues and continues to grow. I agree. We're very lucky here in Seattle that we have SIF. Yeah. Um, and that they are willing to be kind of future thinkers and open their doors to new ideas. Are there, are there volunteer opportunities at SIF as well? SIF always needs volunteers. And the festival, again, is the largest in North America. And it's a huge undertaking just to make it happen. So, um, yes, definitely volunteer at SIF. Another organization locally that I love is Northwest Film Forum. 
And they are great, especially if you're interested in taking filmmaking classes that are accessible to community. Hmm. I, I learned about Northwest Film Forum from Sarah Shannon, our photographer. <laughs> yeah, that's a, I, I looked them up too. They, what, what a neat resource to have for, for young people, or not even young people, just anybody who's interested in film. That's great. So I see a lot of references to the Seattle Art Museum when I Google you. And, you know, it seems like you have some connections there. Can you tell us how you're involved with that organization? Yeah. Um, gosh, I don't even know. Maybe 15 years ago, I worked on a few projects with the Seattle Art Museum as an educator and wrote some curriculum and did some resource planning for the Olympic Sculpture Park, uh, for example, the native plant signage. And helped with a few exhibits. And then I've made films that have been screened there long term in the various galleries as well as exhibits. And then last year was part of Double Exposure. And it was beautiful exhibition that was born out of rethinking how we talk about Edward Curtis. And it was really, there is a strong intention of forefronting indigenous artists. And as a way to, you know, really think about what's happening artistically in Native communities, especially when it comes to portraiture. And um, yeah, it was a great show. So you probably saw my name in regards to Double Exposure a few times. Yeah. And then they also recently acquired a few of my short films. So you're, you're really not limiting yourself to film. I mean, you're, you're in a lot of different mediums in terms of uh, our media in terms of um, art and storytelling? Yeah, I have had fun thinking about more abstract experimental art forms, including virtual reality and black and white films, kind of more poetic song-based stories that are very visual and less narrative. So that's been fun for me. But also, I guess part of this trajectory is curating art and curating space. And so our major undertaking was Yahoo, and it was in King Street Station, and it was an art exhibition of over 250 Indigenous artists. And it took three years to work up to um, our big day in March of this year. We had a, an incredible opening day and an exhibit that just showed the breadth and diversity of Indigenous peoples in the Northwest. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Thanks. And now back to the interview. What are the logistics and the challenges of getting paid? for all the contributions that you're making. <laughs> because I, I would imagine, and I, and I could be wrong, but I would imagine that a lot of the work that you're doing, when you say it took us three years, you're not keeping a timesheet and sending in, all right, here's my hours, Seattle Art Museum or whatever. And they're, they're paying you for every hour that you're working. It, it seems like there is there has to be a passion for what you're doing. But also, if, if we're being practical, you have to make a living and feed yourself and you know, have a 401k and all of that kind of stuff. So what are the challenges in the art community to uh, getting paid fairly for your work? 
Yeah, that's uh, interesting. <laughs> um, not to crack. I don't know what to say about that. We, I've just, I've chosen for the most part to live a very simple life and haven't had huge overhead or expenses. And so have not had the need to make a lot of money right. so I can do the art and make choices that are rooted in community, not out of necessity. It's not easy. I think it's, it's, it's a universal story that artists are in general just, you know, working to get by. But I do have to say that for a long time I made a choice in how I lived my life so I can be an artist. What, what kind of um, challenges are you seeing in terms of having this body of work but, and making sure that it is on platforms where it can be seen, you know, forever. I don't really know a lot about distribution and how platforms like Netflix work or Amazon Prime or PBS, but I would imagine that if you have quite a bit of work that you're proud of that may not it may not all be available to see. So what do you do to try to maximize the opportunity that it is it is going to be seen? maximize the, the the possibility that people can go online and say, hey, oh, I want to look up, you know, I'm an IMDB Tracy Rector and I want to look at her first film project from from Evergreen. You know, how how do they do that and how do you logistically make that happen? So historically I haven't followed through with major distribution. With some of our film projects such as Dawnland or Maiden of Deception Pass, we've made a concerted effort to make sure that those are on platforms that are accessible. And we look for distribution partners, so whether it's PBS or Vision Maker Media, but also just kind of basic Vimeo. And again, I think it's probably, it's interesting as a creative person that hasn't necessarily been my drive to get the work out there um, for people to see. What is fascinating as a person who's more of an advocate by nature, I work hard to get other people's work out there. So that's creating platforms like SIF or working in partnership with film festivals and making sure that they program indigenous content. So it's interesting. So for myself, I often take a back seat or try to be humble or quiet. But for others, I fight hard to get their work out there into the world. Yeah. So your, your lack of ego and <laughs> desire to advance, you know, a sort of a Hollywood paradigm is good. It's good for creativity, but it's probably bad for business. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like. Probably why I didn't make a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> do my thing. <laughs> right. But. You know, I definitely feel as though I have um, earned street cred and I've earned the ability to advocate for others because of making that choice. So I think that kind of circles back to my experience as a domestic violence counselor and thinking about, for me, doing this work is about social justice and equity and prioritizing uplifting other people's voices. Are you contemplating currently, or do you see yourself maybe in the next 10 years doing feature film work that is um, indigenous storytelling, but just in more of a uh, Hollywood style of, of storytelling? Or do you see yourself where you're at right now, working at Neotero and, and kind of 
sticking with the, the, the Pacific Northwest community that you've, um, you've really cultivated over the last 20 years? Yeah. So Neotero being a global organization, all of a sudden I am traveling the world and meeting indigenous peoples across the Pacific and the Amazon, um, in the Arctic. And so there's a lot of room and quite a bit of desire to do pretty impactful storytelling. So we're right now writing a TV series that we want to pitch to Netflix. Oh, nice. And that's exciting. And so through this work at Neotero, I I am thinking on a larger scale and I am thinking more about distribution. But again, I guess that's the theme. It's not about me. It's about amplifying these communities and changing the way that we treat Mother Earth and just realizing we're in a climate crisis. So working hard on behalf to get these stories told because I feel as though there's a need um, for change. I can't remember if we discussed what Dawnland really uh, accomplished and what the whole concept was for that documentary. Can you tell our listeners what Dawnland is? What what the film, the documentary, attempted to do with um, telling that story, and you know what was that story that needed to be told? So Dawnland, directed by Adam Mazo and Ben Pender Cudlip, is a feature film that's about uh, the relationship between stolen children and stolen land on Turtle Island, or as we know it, Canada and the U.S. And it's rooted in the Wabanaki territory, and it's based on the work of Wabanaki women who decided that there needed to be a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to address children taken from their homes as part of adoption, forced adoption, as well as foster care. And it is a film that I think is, you know, it's... It's really about the genocide that has happened on these lands since the first settlers came and removed Native peoples. And it's about that history, how it's not just in the past, but it's still occurring today. You know, we look towards the border, we see children being removed from their families. We can look towards our history books and recognize what's not there. And Dawnland is a vehicle for truth-telling and hopefully filling in those gaps of what has not been presented as factual history yeah. um, for this country. We also have a 144-page teacher's guide, and so we want Dawnland to be a tool for change, which it has been. It's been, it's had over 300 screenings. It's uh, our first week on PBS. We had, I believe, 2.1 million viewers. Um, 2.1 million in one. One week, yeah. yeah it, it, but you, I got to add me in there. So I saw it too. Oh. <laughs> Two million one, <laughs> and one. Thank you. Uh, yes, no, it's really good. It's really yeah. good. And it's, it's, it's powerful. I th I'm glad you brought up the parallels of what's happening today with children being taken away from their parents at, at the border. Very appropriate analogy to, you know, current day events as to what, you know, the, the horrors that were happening in the 50s mm -hmm. and 60s are still happening today. What's happening today is happening in a, a chorus of, of chaos and horrific events. There's so many terrible things that are happening that it's almost getting lost. There's too much noise to really appreciate how awful that is. And if we understand history, we can really have better context to understanding what's happening today. So that's why I think Donland is a great film to check out. It's free. 
I, I hope that there's going to be another platform after PBS in, you know, ends its run in November, but it's a, it's a great project. And I appreciate that you were involved and that those directors had the foresight to, <laughs> to know their own blind spots as um, non-Indigenous people. Absolutely. Tell us about the challenges of picking a, uh, like Vimeo versus YouTube mm. um, for your, like if someone is, has made a short film and the, you know, they put it in both places, YouTube, Vimeo is, uh, you know, what are the, what's the reasoning behind that? Sure. So uh, quite a few filmmakers and creatives use Vimeo as a platform. And I like the interface. I feel as though it's just cleaner and feels more curated. Also, as I understand, Vimeo does not hold any sort of copyright over your material and cannot share it without your permission. And as I understand, YouTube, that's not the same, that they do hold a certain type of copyright and are able to share the work without the maker's permission. So some of it's around just agency. Um, some of it's also around creative community. And also YouTube's just busy. <laughs> a lot of noise and a lot of traffic. I, I forget. I heard recently the numbers of that hundreds of thousands of vin like videos are being uploaded daily now. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I get that same impression when I look at Vimeo versus YouTube that YouTube seems like almost a social media platform as much as it is a, a content provider because you have the ability to comment and troll and you don't even know if an, an account is real or not like they're commenting on the video and it's awful and like who is this person <laughs> and um vimeo just seems to be like as you say like a cleaner platform that isn't so bogged down with the this the social media part of it part of it too is i think youtube has this business model where they they want to keep pushing things on you mm. so you're watching this well okay you're watching this well how about this and this and it's it's almost like clickbait type of uh, of experience mm -hmm. so yeah, yeah. Their algorithms don't always make sense yeah yeah i don't i mean i'm sure vimeo has uh, you know problems just like google does but i don't trust google so and google owns youtube <laughs> oh <laughs> but, right yeah but who knows who owns vimeo maybe google owns vimeo as well so Neotero, a worldwide organization, mm -hmm. you, you say that you're, you're traveling a lot. And where are you going next? I'm going to a Pacifica Islands nation called Vanuatu. And we're meeting with all of our Melanesian, Micronesian, and Polynesian colleagues. And we are planning for Festival of the Pacific Arts in Hawaii in June. So it's a ginormous. Is that a word? A ginormous? <laughs> it's a... <laughs> Festival or Fest Pack, Festival of Pacific Arts, is an enormous gathering that happens every other year. And this year it's in Hawaii. Oh, and it's nice. 33 Pacific Island nations coming together for 10 days of culture sharing. Oh, I hope you booked your hotel. Yeah, oh, yeah. We already have that down. <laughs> You'd be sleeping on the beach, probably. You're right. I think everything's not. almost sold out. Yeah. That's a really exciting. Yeah. So I head there next week to begin the planning for that. Very cool. And I'm just curious, um, the, way, the way I found you was through my friend Tyler Blair. Mm -hmm. um, how do you know Tyler? Does he know my husband? I think he might know your husband, <laughs> yeah. Because I think he said, you know, I'll, I'll reach out to her husband on, on social media. He did. 
Nothing. Crickets. <laughs> I don't think I don't think your husband looked at his messages or something. So it was a long time. I've been trying to track you down for a long time. But but how do, how does your husband know Tyler? Do you know? I don't. So my husband works at The Stranger. He's a senior graphic designer there. He's been there for 20 years. Oh. Um, so I think he just knows a lot of creatives in town for from doing that work. And I get between three and 500 emails a day on my personal email. Oh, my so goodness. I, um, especially starting this job at Neotero, I've just set that aside for a few months. Yeah. I'm a little bit scared to go back. Um, but that might be another reason why I'm hard to reach right now because I'm just ignoring my past life and yeah. keeping focus on this work right now. Well, that explains the firewall. Yeah. You know, why you'd want to keep guys like me away. <laughs> and like why you have Rihanna. I mean, she's great. She, you know, filters out the, the riffraff. And... <laughs> yeah. It's... It's um it's interesting because this work, you know, it's pretty regular. I'm putting in twelve hour days and it's and because we're global, I'm having conversations night at night with people in the Pacific. And it has been an interesting discipline in just being focused. Focused on mm -hmm. one thing, kind of one purpose. So Well it, but before we wrap up, I wanna know what strategies you have for staying connected to people. And it sounds like email's not it uh, these days. Uh, but how how do you communicate with your team in a way that allows you to not be bogged down with a thousand emails per every few days, but also be effective? You know, you have to be you have to issue you know um, instructions and orders and take questions, and there's all kinds of things that you have to do as a producer and a filmmaker. But email, and I'm I'm kind of with you on this. I. It feels like I practice law during the day and it feels like all I do is just email all day long. Yeah. It's bad. Yeah. But I, I don't know what to do differently. You know, I don't know either. I've noticed on Facebook, a lot of people have five, 10,000, 20,000 emails in their inbox. And I feel that that's become a very ineffective way of communicating and it has result in just a lot of noise. I think we're um, experiencing noise in multiple forms from so many directions these days. Yeah. And um, I'm not entirely sure. There's always these new platforms like Slack or Trello or other ways of communicating within Teams. But I just had to get a new phone, a new email. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> and, <laughs> all right. It's a good strategy. I think I'll take that on. <laughs> kind of a do over yeah. um, and not give my number out to many people. And again, I've just been very committed and focusing on my work here at Neotero. And so I've just been, um, been realizing just kind of how stressful all of, kind of all of our activities are these days, right? Yeah. With email, it just, it doesn't always make sense. Well, then you add social media on top of it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that the, the social media pressure to create content mm -hmm. so that you stay relevant in yeah. your field is immense. There's a lot of pressure there. Uh, but then there's, then there's the curation part of it because you have to engage with people, right? That's what mm -hmm. they tell you. You have to comment, like their comments, all this kind of stuff. And it really pulls, I think it pulls people away from what's really important in terms of their, what they need to get done, what needs to get done. It's, um, it's distracting. You know, yeah. I, I wish it was different, but social media is great in a lot of ways. 
but I feel like it makes it very difficult to get anything done substantively in whatever field you're in. And it, it is a distraction. It's something that I'm kind of pushing back on a little bit these days. It's again, I'm realizing the impacts of capitalism on our lives. And part of that is the push to engage or produce content or to just always be available. And that's not sustainable. And I think we're seeing those, that kind of ethos or those values aren't sustainable in our bigger world, right? And so just personally, I hear so many stories about people feeling ill or stressed or disconnected and burnout. Burnout. And yeah. I think there's just got to be a way to be in person, to be human, to reject some of those outside calls for, you know, production 24 seven and just be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wise words. So speaking of social media, um, where can listeners find you on online? Yes. So a great platform for me is Instagram at Tracy Rector Art. You can also follow our work at Neotero at Neotero on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And I would say those are probably the most accessible platforms for me right now, as well as a Longhouse Media and Indigenous Showcase on Instagram. Wonderful. Tracy Rector, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Dream Path Podcast. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. I appreciate your time. And as always, go find your dream path.